0: Good morning, Uh, hopefully uh, I'm not a new face but I am a new face to you up here Uh, and so with that uh, my name is Drew Arrington Uh, my family has been attending uh, Christ Presbyterian Church here for getting close to two years which is pretty long for military families so thank you for your hospitality and welcoming us into this fellowship Um, I am an Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church Minister, which if you don't know what that is, just think a cousin of the PCA. Um, And we'll leave that, and if you want to know more, I can tell you more later. Uh, But that's the basic understanding. Um, And I am currently serving as an Army chaplain uh, on active duty here at Fort Campbell. Well, this morning I count it a great honor and privilege uh, to explore with you a passage that deserves every Christian's attention, study, and appreciation. And with that in mind, I have lightly adapted a prayer from A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy as we pray for the reading and preaching of God's inerrant and infallible Word. Uh, so, with that, if you would bow your heads and join me in prayer. O Lord God Almighty, Not the God of the philosophers and the wise, but the God of the prophets and the apostles. And better than all, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They that know you not may call upon you as other than you are. And in so doing, worship not you, but a creature of their own fancy. Therefore, enlighten our minds that we may know you as you are so that we may perfectly love you and worthily praise you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning's passage uh, is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, which are the last three verses of the chapter. Uh, it's in the New Testament, last third of your Bible. Uh, it's past the Gospels and Acts. Then you're going to run into a bunch of books with the names of cities. Keep going past all the city names, and you start seeing people names. When you see people names, you've hit the pastoral epistles. Paul's letters that he wrote to young ministers. And that is where you will find 1 Timothy. So here's what the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy right about smack dab middle of the letter. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Well, thus ends short but very important passage in Scripture, and one that we will consider. So, I'm going to start out by letting you in on a secret in case you don't already know it we inhabit a culture and a society filled with movements ideologies and theories that are antithetical to Christ and a biblical worldview as shocking as that sounds based on your response (laughs) we also live and move in very complex communities filled with hurting and needful people. And as strange as this might seem to us living in America, this is really nothing new to the church. Because the church throughout history has been a group of called out people distinct from the rest of society because they have been set apart to be the community of the one and only living God. And as such, churches and individuals throughout its history have engaged and influenced culture, community, and society in very profound ways. Yet of all that the church and her people can do, there is one thing she must do. And What is that, you might be asking, and you should. The church must corporately and as individuals steward and pass on a high view of her Savior and herself. Writing in the early half of the 1900s, uh, Tozer noted the following in his book Knowledge of the Holy, and it's there in your bulletin under quotes and notes. He writes, the heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and of her. In all her prayers and labors, this should have first place. We do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them undimmed and undiminished that noble concept of God which we received from our Hebrew and Christian fathers of generations past. This will prove of greater value to them than anything that art or science can devise. And this indeed is Paul's focus in his first letter to Timothy, uh, the young man who was charged with pastoring the church in Ephesus. And Paul opens and closes his letter. I'll leave you to read that later today. But he opens and closes his letter, encouraging, urging the young pastor to protect the pulpit, to protect his people, and to protect himself from those who were pushing hollow philosophies, worldly wisdom, and silly myths. And so it's no surprise to us that here in the middle of Paul's letter, he picks up that same theme and encourages timothy and us today to maintain a high view of our savior and of the church and he does so uh, by pointing us to three essential aspects of the church and that's what we're going to look at this morning three essential aspects of the church that we find here in the last three verses of first timothy three And so what is that first aspect? Well, the first aspect is the church's identity. The church's identity. A lot is made today about identity, and we need, as Christians, to understand what our identity is as the church. And to do that, Paul offers two descriptors here in verse 15. First, he describes the church as the household of God. The household of God. No, this is not a human institution, right? We're filled with human beings. We have uh, certain things that we must accomplish. Uh, We have tax-exempt status, uh, so it looks like a human organization. Oftentimes, we're treated as a human organization. But in reality, the church is not a human institution. It is not like the civic groups to which you belong to out in the community, It is not like a sports team that you may participate in. No, it is unlike any human organization. Because Paul says this is the household of God, or the family of God. And in doing so, Paul points out that it's not about where we meet, how we meet, how we organize ourselves, the polity that we keep, the version of the bible which we choose to read uh, it is about relationships it is about the relationships that we have with one another as the family of god those who have been adopted by god into his family and that we are brothers and sisters in christ jesus and therefore are the family of god one commentator puts it like this the people who gather together to worship, imperfections and all, these are the family of God. You, gathered this morning, are the family of God. And that runs so counter to a lot of what we hear today and a lot of the culture that surrounds us with its focus on the individual It's focus on expressing who I am and setting myself out as different from everybody else. How different it is that God calls us not into an expressive individualism, but into a community of faith that he describes as a family. Some of the passages we read this morning, the one uh, from ephesians talked about how paul describes that family in means of being community focused as opposed to eye focused that christ when he rose from the grave he came and gave us gifts not for our own amusement not for our own self-advancement but so that the community the family of god may be built up into christ jesus into the fullness of that relationship Paul also says that uh, we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ as members of God's household. What a great and wonderful calling that is. But that's not all uh, that Paul writes to Timothy. Not only does he say that we are the household of God, but that we are the church of the living God. And that in and of itself is extremely important to understand in our expressive individualism culture because we are called into a community not of idols whether they be made of wood or stone or whether they may be words and ideas we are called not to these fabricated words and fashioned idols but we are called to be in relationship with the living god the living god the living god who quells our confusion The living God who answers our questions. The living God who addresses our doubts. The living God who deals gently with our concerns. We come to the living God who consoles our hurt and heals our pain. Idols of wood and stone cannot do that. Idols of vain words... (sighs) and ideas cannot do that only the living god can do that well so we see that the church is a remarkable group of people you are a remarkable group of people called out of slavery to sin and self and transformed into the very family of the living god and that is not something to be trifled with that is something that we must embrace and pass on to successive generations well we now turn to the second aspect of the church and that being her purpose which paul lays out in the last part of verse 15 when he describes the church as a pillar and buttress of the truth so there we see paul saying that the church's purpose is akin to the pillar and the buttress now Those two words may not mean much to you. They're architectural, and so uh, some of you may understand what a pillar and a buttress are. Uh, Others of us need to understand a little bit more. But Timothy and the the church there in Ephesus would definitely know what a pillar and a buttress were and would be very interested because... In the lifetime of Christ, about A.D. 17 and A.D. 23, there were successive earthquakes in those years that shook the region of Ephesus and nine other cities and partially or nearly completely destroyed those cities. And it was the buildings that had, a strong, that had strong pillars and strong buttresses or strong supports that were more likely to have withstood the shaking of the earth. Now, Tennessee and Kentuckians, um, not that I am one, but some of you are, uh, you are very familiar with another type of threat that shakes, except it doesn't come from the ground, it comes from the air tornadoes. And so you, in that way, can understand and appreciate strong foundations and solid supports. And Paul here is not giving us architectural advice, right? He's not telling uh, local churches how better to build their buildings so that it survives earthquakes and tornadoes. No, he's telling us and communicating to Timothy and to us by extension that the church's purpose is to be a pillar and buttress of truth against the movements, ideologies, and theories that shake and blow against the church in successive generations. And it's important for us today, just as it was when Timothy was receiving this encouragement for Paul, because we know that our church today, the people in our congregation, you are feeling that earth, the ground shaking beneath you. You feel the winds of the words battering against you from various different places. And it's important to know how that comes. We see that uh, oftentimes in our educational systems, uh, foisting upon our children and some of our own uh, selves uh, hollow philosophies that don't carry much weight compared to the truth that God presents. We see it uh, entered into our homes, into the very uh, intimate places of our homes. We welcome Worldly wisdom through our various entertainment platforms. I'm not saying that you need to get rid of entertainment platforms. I have them. But know that that is an avenue in which we welcome in worldly wisdom. And it's also seen in our social media feeds where silly myths poison our interactions with one another. And all of this Feeds our own sinful actions, attitudes, thoughts, and words. But our generation isn't the first and it won't be the last that suffered and has gone through this. Uh, We read from Isaiah 28, uh, which was, I know, a really exciting passage to have read this morning. Um, But that was intentionally picked because that is a generation Where the leaders there in Israel, the leaders in Jerusalem, failed to avail themselves of the pillar and buttress of the truth. Failed to steward their position as the leaders of the household of God. And instead of resting on the covenant-keeping God, they rested, they found their refuge in lies. And they found shelter, tried to find shelter, in falsehood. And I don't know if you caught it, but verse 20 sums up the effect of their um, seeking that refuge. It says, for the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. In other words, they exchanged the glory of the truth that God had given them for a bed that they couldn't fit on and a blanket that wouldn't cover them to keep them warm from the destruction that was coming. In other words, what they exchanged for could not help them even though they thought it would. And oftentimes that happens to us. When we fail to steward our position as the church of the living God. When we fail to steward our position and our purpose as being a pillar and a buttress of God's truth. Will, uh, Cody, several weeks ago now... um, Highlighted this for us when he said that oftentimes when we Are reaching out to our neighbors and we try to bring them to a doctrine a polity or some sort of piety Over bringing them to the gospel of Jesus Christ That is the truth that we are holding up. That is the truth for which the church purpose is to be a pillar and a buttress and so A good question is, how are we to steward that position? And I'll give you just a couple of examples. One, pray for your elders. Your elders are the ones charged with spiritual care of this church, this local church, this congregation, this family of the living God. Pray that they may be faithful to lead you according to the scriptures and the truth therein contained. Another way is to discipline ourselves that we might display God's truth. That we might display God's truth in our words and in our deeds. That we might display God's truth not just in this sanctuary, but out in the city. That we might show this truth not only in the words that we sing, but in the creeds we profess. And then may we fight against the temptation to exchange the church's confession for a bed that is too short and a cover that is too narrow. Well, it is now to that confession, that third and final aspect of the church that we turn to in verse 16. And here in verse 16, Paul says, look, this third aspect of the church that we must understand and pass on is that the church is that of the church's confession and before we get to the content i want to look at the character of the church's confession because it is amazing there in the first line of verse 16 paul says that the church's confession is great we haven't even gotten to the content and he's saying hey look this confession is great It is a big bed. It is a wide cover. It is the very fullness of God's mercy and grace on display to you. It is a great confession because it is about the natural and the supernatural, it is about the eternal and the temporary. But not only is this confession great, this confession is unifying. And what a great need that is in today's world. What you have, what we have as a church, is a unifying confession that we can bring to a world that seeks to divide us further and further into smaller and smaller segments and if that weren't enough then to pit segment against segment against segment. But here we have in this confession that which truly unifies. That the ark of Scripture demonstrates is a unifying force throughout the history of humanity and that will be the resounding theme in when Christ returns as Revelation states that this is the time when God will call out and create visibly for himself a nation a, a group of people that is, comes from every nation every people, every tribe and every tongue comprising the household of the living God and then we see that this Confession is also a mystery. And we don't have time to talk about the depth of that ministry, mystery, and I encourage you to, to take a look at the Simeon quote later this evening uh, as you are enjoying the rest of the Lord's Day. But ultimately, he says, this confession is beyond comprehension. And that is not a bad thing. That is a very good thing. Because if it weren't beyond our ability to comprehend, it could be manufactured and not revealed. And it is also a mystery because it is about the mingling of heaven and earth. The mingling of heaven and earth. The infusing, the intertwining of the spiritual and the physical. And that really is the content here, this mysterious mingling of heaven and earth. And in the last three couplets of the passage today, Paul uh, shows us this mingling of heaven and earth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. How he is uniting heaven and earth. He is bringing together the physical and the spiritual the eternal and the temporal, in a way that is reversing the curse of sin. It is a great mingling of these two realities. In the first one we see, uh, he was manifested in the flesh. And, And to understand how glorious and mysterious that is, you only need to read uh, Westminster Catechism, question uh, seven. What is God? A go- answer, God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant, and goodness and truth. And yet this took on the limitations of human flesh, the constraints of humanity. What a great mystery, this mingling of the divine and the human, this this infusing of the temporal and the eternal so much so that he was vindicated by the Spirit. and Think about that for a minute. God Almighty had come down into humanity so much so that the Holy Spirit, both at his baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration, came to give testimony that this, in fact, was God. God needing to vindicate himself in the presence of human beings. So mysterious is this mingling of heaven and earth. But also we see this mingling was was witnessed not only by angels, but also by men. So it is witnessed both in the heavenly realms and in the earthly. The angels witnessed this mystery and they proclaimed it to the shepherds and they attended to Christ throughout his life, specifically looking at his temptation in the desert. But then also, we see that it was proclaimed among the nations that Christ himself proclaimed himself along with the disciples in Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth. What a great mingling of heaven and earth. And then we see in that last couplet that he was believed on in the world and taken up in glory. Again, a mingling, taking—he was believed on in the world and taken up into glory again, bringing together heaven and earth in that same couplet. What an amazing mingling of heaven and earth! And there's so much more that we could talk about these. Six lines, these three couplets that really describe the church's confession. And it is an amazing confession, a confession uh, that God has committed to us. And that, as John Chrysostom states, it is a confession that we should steward well. And how might we do that? Well, you know what? This is a great message that the world needs to hear because it is a as we referenced a a big bed and a wide cover and there are many people who are hurting who need healing and it is this confession that can bring healing it is this confession that brings clarity to confusion It is this great mystery that dispels our doubts. But we also need to rear our children with an understanding of this great mysterious mingling of heaven and earth. This idea that that the spiritual is with us now. And that there is a physical existence beyond this one in which Christ will come and redeem our bodies to have an embodied eternity with him in this earth. We need to catechize our children in this because they are being catechized. You are being catechized every day and it's not in this mysterious mystery that is our confession. And then finally, may this great confession, this mysterious mystery, resound in our worship and reverberate in all we do as a local church. Well, that is a great, unifying, and mysterious confession that Paul has laid before us today. And as we conclude this morning, we come to the understanding that of all the great things that the local church, all the great things that you as the family of God, as individuals and as a body, can do, one thing we must do is to steward and pass on a high view of God and the family of God. Because that will be more important to our children, to our society, to the rest of the time that humanity has before Christ comes back. Than anything, science or the arts or politics or you name it, can ever give us. Well... May the Holy Spirit continue to apply the mystery of godliness to our hearts and to our minds, both now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a great mystery you have presented to us this morning. The mystery of your Son, Jesus Christ, and his life, death, and resurrection and ascension the heaven of beginning and continuing and bringing to fruition at his return that great mingling of heaven and earth. Lord may that confession be in our hearts and in our minds and on our lips, both now and forevermore for your glory. Amen.